Hello there, and welcome to tonight's episode of Down to Sleep. This is a podcast of softly spoken stories to help you get a good night's rest. Every week I read books to you whilst you lay there, relax, and drift off. Thank you for joining me. Tonight, the second half of The Little Prince. This will take us to the end of the book and be a complete reading along with last week's episode. If you would like to get more complete audiobooks and two episodes a week, as well as the power to vote on what book I read next, come and join me on Patreon. For just a few dollars a month, you get what is currently 130 episodes as of tonight. Every single episode that I've released so far, and two new episodes every week. Thank you for listening, regardless of whether you can support on Patreon or not. It is a privilege to read to you, and I hope that you get some use out of these episodes and enjoy them. So, let's go ahead and tuck you in, take a nice deep breath, and let's get down to sleep. With The Little Prince, Part 2. The sixth planet was ten times larger than the last one. It was inhabited by an old gentleman who wrote voluminous books. Oh look! Here is an explorer, he exclaimed to himself when he saw the little prince coming. The little prince sat down on the table and panted a little. He had already travelled so much and so far. Where do you come from, the old gentleman said to him. What's that big book, said the little prince. What are you doing? I'm a geographer, the old gentleman said to him. What is a geographer, asked the little prince. A geographer is a scholar who knows the location of all seas, rivers, towns, mountains, and deserts. That is very interesting, said the little prince. Here at last is a man who has a real profession, and he cast a look around him at the planet of the geographer. It was the most magnificent and stately planet that he had ever seen. Your planet is very beautiful, he said. Has it any oceans? I couldn't tell you, said the geographer. Ah, the little prince was disappointed. Has it any mountains? I couldn't tell you, said the geographer. Towns, rivers, deserts? I couldn't tell you that either. But you are a geographer. Exactly, the geographer said. But I am not an explorer. I haven't a single explorer on my planet. It's not the geographer who goes out to count the towns, the rivers, the mountains, the seas, the oceans, the deserts. The geographer is much too important to go loafing about. He does not leave his desk, but he receives the explorers in his study. He asks them questions, he notes down what they recall of their travels. And if the recollections of any one among them seem interesting to him, the geographer orders an inquiry into that explorer's moral character. Why is that? Because an explorer who told lies would bring disaster on the books of the geographer, so would an explorer who drank too much. Why is that? asked the prince. Because intoxicated men see double. Then the geographer would note down two mountains in a place where there was only one. I know someone, said the little prince, who would make a bad explorer. That is possible. Then, when the moral character of the explorer is shown to be good, an inquiry is ordered into his discovery. One goes to see it? No, that would be too complicated. But one requires the explorer to furnish proofs. For example, if the discovery in question is that of a large mountain, one requires that large stones be brought back from it. 
The geographer was suddenly stirred to excitement. But you, you come from far away. You are an explorer. You shall describe your planet to me. And having opened his big register, the geographer sharpened his pencil. The recitals of explorers are put down first in pencil. One waits until the explorer has furnished proofs before putting them down in ink. Well, said the geographer, expectantly. Oh, where I live, said the little prince. It is not very interesting. It is all so small. I have three volcanoes. Two volcanoes are active and the other is extinct. But one never knows. One never knows, said the geographer. I have also a flower. We do not record flowers, said the geographer. Why is that? The flower is the most beautiful thing on my planet. We do not record them, said the geographer, because they are ephemeral. What does that mean, ephemeral? Geographies, said the geographer, are the books which, of all the books, are most concerned with matters of consequence. They never become old-fashioned. It's very rarely that a mountain changes its position. It is very rarely that an ocean empties itself of its waters. We write of eternal things. But extinct volcanoes may come to life again, the little prince interrupted. What does that mean, ephemeral? Whether volcanoes are extinct or alive, it comes to the same thing for us. The thing that matters to us is the mountain. It does not change. But what does that mean? Ephemeral, repeated the little prince, who never in his life had let go of a question once he had asked it. It means, which is in danger of a speedy disappearance. Is my flower in danger of speedy disappearance? Certainly, it is. My flower is ephemeral, the little prince said to himself. She only has four thorns to defend herself against the world. And I left her on my planet all alone. That was his first moment of regret. But he took courage once more. What place would you advise me to visit now? he asked. The planet Earth, replied the geographer. It has a good reputation. And the little prince went away, thinking of his flower. Chapter 16 So then, the seventh planet was the Earth. The Earth is not just an ordinary planet. One can count there 111 kings, 7,000 geographers, 900,000 businessmen, 7.5 million tipplers, 311 million conceited men, that is to say, about 2 billion grown-ups. To give you an idea of the size of the Earth, I will tell you that before the invention of electricity, it was necessary to maintain over the whole of six continents an army of 462,511 lamplighters for the street lamps. Seen from a slight distance, that would make a splendid spectacle. The movements of this army would be regulated like those of the ballet and the opera. First would come the turn of the lamplighters of New Zealand and Australia. Having set their lamps alight, they would go to sleep. Next, the lamplighters of China and Siberia would enter for their steps in the dance, and then they too would be waved back into the wings. After that would come the turn of the lamplighters of Russia, the Indies, those of Africa and Europe, then those of South America, then those of North America, and never would they make a mistake in the order of their entry upon the stage. It would be 
magnificent. Only the man who was in charge of a single lamp at the North Pole, and his colleague who was responsible for the single lamp at the South Pole, only these two would live free from toil and care. They would be busy twice a year. Chapter 17 When one wishes to play the wit, he sometimes wanders a little from the truth. I have not been altogether honest in what I have told you about the lamplighters, and I realize that I run the risk of giving a false idea of our planet to those who do not know it. Men occupy a very small place upon the earth. If the two billion inhabitants who people its surface were all to stand upright and somewhat crowded together as they do for some big public assembly, they could easily be put into one public square twenty miles long and twenty miles wide. All humanity could be piled up on a small Pacific islet. The grown-ups, to be sure, will not believe you when you tell them that. They imagine that they fill a great deal of space. They fancy themselves as important as the Baobabs. You should advise them, then, to make their own calculations. They adore figures that will please them. Do not waste your time on this extra task. It is unnecessary. You have, I know, confidence in me. When the little prince arrived on the earth, he was very much surprised not to see any people. He was beginning to be afraid that he had come to the wrong planet. When a coil of gold, the color of moonlight, flashed across the sand. Good evening, said the little prince, courteously. Good evening, said the snake. What planet is this on which I have come down? asked the little prince. This is the earth. This is Africa, the snake answered. Ah, then there are no people on the earth. This is the desert. There are no people in the desert. The earth is large, said the snake. The little prince sat down on a stone and raised his eyes towards the sky. I wonder, he said, whether the stars are set alight in heaven, so that one day each one of us may find his own again. Look at my planet. It's right there above us. But how far away it is. It's beautiful, the snake said. What has brought you here? I've been having some trouble with a flower, said the little prince. Ah, said the snake, and they were both silent. Where are the men? The little prince at last, taking up the conversation again, said. It is a little lonely in the desert. It is also lonely among men, the snake said. The little prince gazed at him for a long time. You are a funny animal, he said at last. You're no thicker than a finger. But I am more powerful than the finger of a king, said the snake. The little prince smiled. You are not very powerful. You haven't even any feet. You cannot even travel. I can carry you farther than any ship could take you, said the snake. He twined himself around the little prince's ankle like a golden bracelet. Whomever I touch, I send back to the earth from whence he came. The snake spoke again. But you are innocent and true, and you come from a star. The little prince made no reply. You move me to pity. You are so weak on this earth, made of granite, the snake said. I can help you some day if you grow too homesick. For your own planet, I can... Oh... I understand you very well, said the little prince. But why do you always speak in riddles? I solve them all, said the snake. 
and they were both silent. Chapter 18 The little prince crossed the desert and met with only one flower. It was a flower with three petals, a flower of no account at all. Good morning, said the little prince. Good morning, said the flower. Where are the men? the little prince asked politely. The flower had once seen a caravan passing. Men, she echoed. I think there are six or seven of them in existence. I saw them several years ago. One never knows where to find them. The wind blows them away. They have no roots. That makes their life very difficult. Goodbye, said the little prince. Goodbye, said the flower. Chapter 19 After that, the little prince climbed a high mountain. The only mountains he had ever known were the three volcanoes, which came up to his knees. He used the extinct volcano as a footstool. From a mountain as high as this one, he said to himself, I shall be able to see the whole planet at one glance, and all the people. But he saw nothing, save peaks of rock that were sharpened like needles. Good morning, he said courteously. Good morning, good morning, good morning, answered the echo. Who are you? said the little prince. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? answered the echo. Be my friends. I'm all alone, he said. I'm all alone. All alone, answered the echo. What a queer planet, he thought. It is altogether dry and altogether pointed and altogether harsh and forbidding. The people have no imagination. They repeat whatever one says to them. On my planet, I had a flower. She was always the first to speak. Chapter 20 But it happened that after walking for a long time through the sand and rocks and snow, the little prince at last came upon a road, and all roads lead to the abodes of men. Good morning, he said. He was standing before a garden, all abloom with roses. Good morning, said the roses. The little prince gazed at them. They all looked like his flower. Who are you? he demanded, thunderstruck. We are roses, the roses said. And he was overcome with sadness. His flower had told him that she was the only one of her kind in all of the universe, and here were five thousand of them, all alike, in one single garden. She would be very much annoyed, he said to himself, if she should see that she would cough most dreadfully and she would pretend that she was dying to avoid being laughed at, and I should be obliged to pretend that I was nursing her back to life. For if I did not do that, to humble myself also, she would really allow herself to die. He went on with his reflections. I thought I was rich, with a flower that was unique in all the world, and all I had was a common rose a common rose and three volcanoes that come up to my knees, one of them perhaps extinct forever. That doesn't make me a very great prince. He lay down in the grass, and he cried. Chapter 21 It was then that the fox appeared. Good morning, said the fox. Good morning, the little prince responded politely although when he turned around he saw nothing. I'm right here, the voice said, under the apple tree. Who are you? asked the little prince, and added, 
You're very pretty to look at. I'm a fox, said the fox. Come play with me, proposed the prince. I'm so unhappy. I cannot play with you, the fox said. I'm not tamed. Please, excuse me, said the little prince. After some thought, he added, What does that mean? Tame? You do not live here, said the fox. What is it you're looking for? I'm looking for men, said the little prince. What does it mean, tame? Men, said the fox. They have guns, they hunt. It's very disturbing. They raise chickens. These are their only interest. Are you looking for chickens? No, said the little prince. I'm looking for friends. What does it mean, tame? It is an act too often neglected, said the fox. It means to establish ties. To establish ties. Just that, said the fox. To me, you are still nothing more than a little boy, who is just like a hundred thousand other little boys, and I have no need of you. And you, on your part, have no need of me. To you, I'm nothing more than a fox, like a hundred thousand other foxes, but if you tame me, we shall need each other. To me, you will be unique in all the world. To you, I shall be unique in all the world. I'm beginning to understand, said the little prince. There's a flower, and I think that she has tamed me. It's possible, said the fox. On the earth one sees all sorts of things. Oh, but this is not the earth, said the little prince. The fox seemed perplexed and very curious. Another planet? Yes. Are there hunters on your planet? No. Oh, that's interesting. Are there chickens? No. Nothing's perfect, sighed the fox. But he came back to his idea. My life is very monotonous, the fox said. I hunt chickens, men hunt me. All the chickens are just alike. All the men just alike. In consequence, I'm a little bored. But if you tame me, it will be as if the sun came to shine on my life. I shall know the sound of a step that will be different from the others. Other steps send me hurrying back underneath the ground. Yours will call to me like music out of my burrow. And then, look, you see the grain fields down yonder. I do not eat bread. Wheat is of no use to me. The wheat fields have nothing to say to me, and that's sad, but you have hair that's the colour of gold. Think how wonderful that will be when you've tamed me. The grain, which is also golden, will bring me back to the thought of you. And I shall love to listen to the wind in the wheat. The fox gazed at the little prince for a long time. Please, tame me, he said. I want to very much, the little prince replied. But I have not much time. I have friends to discover and a great many things to understand. One only understands the things that one tames, said the fox. Men have no more time to understand anything. They buy things already made at the shops, but there's no shop anywhere where one can buy friendship, and so men have no friends anymore. If you want a friend, tame me. What must I do to tame you? asked the little prince. You must be very patient, replied the fox. First, you will sit down a little distance from me, like that in the grass. I shall look at you out of the corner of my eye, 
you will say nothing. Words are a source of misunderstandings, but you will sit a little closer to me every day. The next day, the little prince came back. It would have been better to come back at the same hour, said the fox. If, for example, you come at four o'clock in the afternoon, then at three o'clock I shall begin to be happy. I shall feel happier and happier as the hour advances. At four o'clock I shall already be worrying and jumping about. I shall show you how happy I am. But if you come at just any time, I shall never know at what hour my heart is to be ready to greet you. One must observe the proper rites. What's a right? asked the little prince. Those also are actions too often neglected, said the fox. They are what make one day different from other days, one hour from other hours. There is a right, for example, among my hunters. Every Thursday they dance with the village girls, so Thursday is a wonderful day for me. I can take a walk as far as the vineyards, but if the hunters danced at any time, every day would be like every other day. I should never have any vacation at all. So... The little prince tamed the fox, and when the hour of his departure drew near, ah, said the fox, I shall cry. It's your own fault, said the little prince. I never wished you any sort of harm, but you wanted me to tame you. Yes, that is so, said the fox. But now you're going to cry, said the little prince. Yes, that is so, said the fox. Then it's done you no good at all. It has done me good, said the fox. The colour of the wheat fields. Go and look again at the roses, and you will understand now that yours is unique in all the world. Then come back and say goodbye to me, and I will make a present of a secret. The little prince went away again to look at the roses. You are not at all like my rose, he said. As yet you are nothing. No one has tamed you, and you have tamed no one. You were like my fox when I first knew him. He was only a fox, like a hundred thousand other foxes. But I've made him my friend. And now he's unique in all the world. The roses were very much embarrassed. You're beautiful, but you were empty, he went on. One could not die for you. To be sure, an ordinary passerby would think that my rose looked just like you. The rose that belongs to me. But in herself alone she is more important than all the hundreds of you other roses, because it is she that I have watered. It is she that I have put under the glass globe, because it is she that I have sheltered behind the screen, because it is her that I have killed the caterpillars, except the two or three that we saved become butterflies, because it is she that I have listened to when she grumbled or boasted, or even sometimes when she said nothing, because she is my rose." and he went back to meet the fox. Goodbye, he said. Goodbye, said the fox. Now here's my secret, a very simple secret. It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. What is essential is invisible to the eye, the little prince repeated so that he would be sure to remember. It is the time that you have wasted for your rose that makes your rose so important. It is the time I wasted for my rose, said the little prince, so he would be sure to remember. 
Men have forgotten this truth, said the fox, but you must not forget it. You become responsible forever for what you have tamed. You are responsible for your rose. I am responsible for my rose, the little prince repeated, so that he would be sure to remember. Good morning, said the little prince. Good morning, said the railway switchman. What do you do here? the little prince asked. I sort out travellers in bundles of a thousand, said the switchman. I send off the trains that carry them, now to the right, now to the left. And a brilliantly lighted express train shook the switchman's cabin as it rushed by with a roar like thunder. They are in a great hurry, said the little prince. What are they looking for? Not even the locomotive engineer knows that, said the switchman. A second brilliantly lighted express thundered by in the opposite direction. Are they coming back already? demanded the little prince. These are not the same ones, said the switchman. It's an exchange. Were they not satisfied where they were? asked the little prince. No one is ever satisfied where he is, said the switchman. They heard the roaring thunder of a third brilliantly lighted express. Are they pursuing the first travellers? demanded the little prince. They're pursuing nothing at all, said the switchman. They're asleep in there. Or if they're not asleep, they're yawning. Only the children are flattening their noses against the window panes. Only the children know what they're looking for, said the little prince. They waste their time over a rag doll, and it becomes very important to them. If anybody takes it away from them, they cry. They are lucky, the switchman said. Chapter 23 Good morning, said the little prince. Good morning, said the merchant. This was a merchant who sold pills that had been invented to quench thirst. You need only swallow one pill a week, and you feel no need of anything to drink. Why are you selling those, asked the little prince. Because they save a tremendous amount of time, said the merchant. Computations have been made by experts, and with these pills you save 53 minutes in every week. What do I do with those 53 minutes? Well, anything you like. Well, for me, said the little prince to himself, if I had 53 minutes to spend as I liked, I should walk at my leisure towards a spring of fresh water. Chapter 24 It was now the eighth day since I had had my accident in the desert. I had listened to the story of the merchant as I was drinking the last drop of my water supply. Ah, I said to the little prince, these memories of yours are very charming, but I have not yet succeeded in repairing my plane. I have nothing more to drink, and I too should be very happy if I could walk at my leisure towards a spring of fresh water. My friend, the fox, the little prince said to me, my dear little man, this is no longer a matter that has anything to do with the fox. Why not? Because I am about to die of thirst. He did not follow my reasoning, and he answered me, It's a very good thing to have had a friend, even if one is about to die. I, for instance, am very glad to have had a fox as a friend. He has no way of guessing the danger, I said to myself. He's never been hungry or thirsty. A little sunshine is all he needs. But he looked at me steadily, 
and replied to my thought. I'm thirsty too. Let us look for a well. I made a gesture of weariness. It's absurd to look for a well at random in the immensity of the desert. But nevertheless, we started walking. When we had trudged along for several hours in silence, the darkness fell and the stars began to come out. Thirst had made me a little feverish, and I looked at them as if I were in a dream. The little prince's last words came reeling back into my memory. Then you are thirsty too, I demanded. But he did not reply to my question. He merely said to me, Water may also be good for the heart. I did not understand this answer, but I said nothing. I knew very well that it was impossible to cross-examine him. He was tired. He sat down. I sat down beside him. After a little silence, he spoke again. The stars are beautiful because of a flower that cannot be seen. I replied, yes, that is so. And without saying anything more, I looked across the ridges of sand that were stretched out before us in the moonlight. The desert is beautiful, the little prince added. And that was true. I've always loved the desert. One sits down on a desert sand dune, sees nothing, hears nothing. Yet through the silence, something throbs and gleams. What makes the desert beautiful, said the little prince, is that somewhere it hides a well. I was astonished by a sudden understanding of that mysterious radiation of the sands. When I was a little boy, I lived in an old house, and legend told us that a treasure was buried there. To be sure, no one had ever known how to find it. Perhaps no one had ever even looked for it. But it cast an enchantment over that house. My home was hiding a secret in the depths of its heart. Yes, I said to the little prince. The house, the stars, the desert, what gives them their beauty is something that is invisible. I'm glad, he said, that you agree with my fox. As the little prince dropped off to sleep, I took him in my arms and set out walking once more. I felt deeply moved and stirred. It seemed to me that I was carrying a very fragile treasure. It seemed to me even that there was nothing more fragile on all of the earth. In the moonlight, I looked at his pale forehead, his closed eyes, his locks of hair that trembled in the wind, and I said to myself, What I see here is nothing but a shell. What is most important is invisible. As his lips opened slightly with the suspicion of a half-smile, I said to myself, what moves me so deeply about this little prince who is sleeping here is his loyalty to a flower, the image of a rose that shines through his whole being like the flame of a lamp, even when he is asleep. I felt him to be more fragile still. I felt the need of protecting him as if he himself were a flame that might be extinguished by a little puff of wind. And so I walked on. I found the well at daybreak. Chapter 25 Men, said the little prince, 
set out on their way in express trains, but they do not know what they're looking for. Then they rush about, get excited, and turn round and round. He added, It is not worth the trouble. The well that we had come to was not like the wells of the Sahara. The wells of the Sahara were mere holes dug in the sand. This one was like a well in a village, but there was no village here, and I thought I must be dreaming. "'Tis strange,' I said to the little prince. "'Everything's ready for use, the pulley, the bucket, the rope.' He laughed and touched the rope and set the pulley to working. The pulley moaned like an old weather vane which the wind has long since forgotten. "'Do you hear?' said the little prince. "'We have wakened the well, and it is singing.' I did not want him to tire himself with the rope. Leave it to me, I said. It's too heavy for you. I hoisted the bucket slowly to the edge of the well, and I set it there, happy, tired as I was over my achievement. The song of the pulley was still in my ears, and I could see the sunlight shimmer in the still trembling water. I am thirsty for this water, said the little prince. Give me some of it to drink and I understood what he had been looking for. I raised the bucket to his lips, he drank, his eyes closed. It was as sweet as some special festival treat. This water was indeed a different thing from ordinary nourishment. Its sweetness was born of the walk under the stars, the song of the pulley, the effort of my arms. It was good for the heart, like a present. When I was a little boy, the lights of the Christmas tree, the music of the midnight mass, the tenderness of smiling faces, used to make up so the radiance of gifts that I received. The men where you live, said the little prince, raise five thousand roses in the same garden. They do not find in it what they're looking for. They do not find it, I replied. And yet what they're looking for could be found in one single rose, or in a little water. Yes, that is true, I said. The little prince added, but the eyes are blind. One must look with the heart. I had drunk the water. I breathed easily. At sunrise, the sand is the color of honey, and that honey color was making me happy too. What brought me then this sense of grief? You must keep your promise, said the little prince, as he sat down beside me once more. What promise? You know, a muzzle for my sheep. I'm responsible for this flower. I took my rough drafts of drawings out of my pocket. The little prince looked them over and laughed as he said, Your baobabs, they look a little like cabbages. Oh, I had been so proud of my baobabs. Your fox, his ears look a little like horns, and they're too long. He laughed again. You are not fair, little prince, I said. I, I don't know how to draw anything except boa constrictors from the outside and boa constrictors from the inside. Oh, that that'll be all right, he said. Children understand. So then I made a pencil sketch of a muzzle. And as I gave it to him, my heart was torn. You have plans that I do not know about, I said. He did not answer me, he said to me instead. You know, my descent to the earth? 
Tomorrow will be its anniversary. After a silence, he went on. I came down very near here. Once again, without understanding why, I had a queer sense of sorrow. One question, however, occurred to me. Then it was not by chance that on the morning when I first met you, a week ago, you were strolling along like that, all alone, a thousand miles from any inhabited region. You were on your way back to the place where you landed. The little prince flushed. I added with some hesitancy. Perhaps because of the anniversary. The prince flushed once more. He never answered questions, but when one flushes, does that not mean yes? Ah, I said to him. I am a little frightened. He interrupted me. Now you must work. You must return to your engine. I will be waiting for you here. Come back tomorrow evening. But I was not reassured. I remembered the fox. One runs the risk of weeping a little if one lets himself be tamed. Chapter 26 Beside the well there was the ruin of an old stone wall. When I came back from my work the next evening, I saw from some distance away my little prince sitting on top of the wall with his feet dangling. I heard him say, Then you don't remember, this is the exact spot. Another voice must have answered him, for he replied, Yes, yes, it is the right day, but this is not the place. I continued my walk towards the wall at no time did I see or hear anyone. The little prince replied once again. Exactly. You will see where my track begins in the sand. You have nothing to do but wait for me there. I shall be there tonight. I was only twenty meters from the wall and I still saw nothing. After a silence, the little prince spoke again. You have good poison? You are sure it will not make me suffer too long? I stopped in my tracks, my heart torn asunder. Still, I did not understand. Now go away, said the little prince. I want to get down from the wall. I dropped my eyes to the foot of the wall and I leapt into the air. There before me facing the little prince was one of those yellow snakes that take just thirty seconds to bring your life to an end. Even as I was digging into my pocket to get out my revolver, I made a running step back, but at the noise I made, the snake let himself flow easily across the sand like a dying spray of a fountain, and in no apparent hurry, disappeared with a light metallic sound among the stones. I reached the wall just in time to catch my little man in my arms, his face as white as snow. "'What does this mean?' I demanded. "'Why are you talking to snakes?' I had loosened the golden muffler that he always wore. I had moistened his temples and given him water to drink. Now I did not dare ask him any more questions. He looked at me very gravely and put his arms around my neck. I felt his heart beating like the heart of a dying bird, shot with a rifle. I'm glad you found what was the matter with your engine, he said. Now you can go back home. How do you know about that? I was just coming to tell him that my work had been successful beyond anything that I had dared to hope. He made no answer to my question, but added, I too am going back home today. And 
sadly. It is much farther. It is much more difficult. I realized clearly that something extraordinary was happening. I was holding him close in my arms as if he were a little child, and yet it seemed to me that he was rushing headlong toward an abyss from which I could do nothing to restrain him. His look was very serious, like someone lost far away. I have your sheep, and I have the sheep's box. I have the muzzle. He gave me a sad smile. I waited a long time. I could see that he was reviving little by little. Dear little man, I said to him, you're afraid. He was afraid, there was no doubt about that, but he laughed lightly. I shall be much more afraid this evening. Once again I felt myself frozen by the sense of something irreparable. And I knew that I could not bear the thought of never hearing that laughter anymore. For me, it was like a spring of fresh water in the desert. Little man, I said, I want to hear you laugh again. He said to me, Tonight it will be a year, my star, and then it can be found right above the place where I came to earth a year ago. Little man, I said, uh, tell me it's only a bad dream, the affair of the snake and the meeting place, the star. He did not answer my plea, he said to me instead. The thing that is important is the thing that is not seen. Yes, I know. It is just as it is with the flower. If you love a flower that lives on a star, it is sweet to look at the sky at night. All the stars are abloom with flowers. Yes, I know. It is just as it is with the water. Because of the pulley and the rope, what you gave me to drink was like music. You remember how good it was. Yes, I know. And at night, you will look up to the stars. Where I live, everything is so small that I cannot show you where my star is to be found. It is better like that. My star will just be one of the stars for you. And so you will love to watch all the stars in the heavens. They will all be your friends. And besides, I am going to make you a present. He laughed again. Little prince, dear little prince, I love to hear that laughter. That is my present, just that. It will be as it was when we drank the water. What are you trying to say? All men have the stars, he answered. But they're not the same things for different people. For some who are travelers, the stars are guides. For others, they are no more than little lights in the sky. For others who are scholars, they are problems. For my businessmen, they were wealth, but all these stars are silent. You, you alone will have the stars as no one else has them. What are you trying to say? In one of the stars, I shall be living. In one of them, I shall be laughing. And so it will be as if all the stars were laughing when you look at the sky at night. You, only you, will have stars that can laugh. And he laughed again. And when your sorrow is comforted, 
time soothes all sorrows. You will be content that you have known me. You will always be my friend. You will want to laugh with me. And you will sometimes open your window so for that pleasure. Your friends will be properly astonished to see you laughing as you look up at the sky. And you'll say to them, yes, the stars always make me laugh. And they will think that you are crazy. It will be a very shabby trick that I have played on you. He laughed again. It will be as if, in place of the stars, I had given you a great number of little bells that knew how to laugh. He laughed again, and quickly became serious. Tonight, you know. Do not come, said the little prince. I shall not leave you, I said. I shall look as if I were suffering. I shall look a little as if I were dying. It's like that. Do not come to see that, it is not worth the trouble. I shall not leave you. But he was worried. I tell you, it's also because of the snake, he must not bite you. Snakes, malicious creatures, this one might bite you just for fun. I shall not leave you. A thought came to reassure him. It is true that they have no more poison for a second bite. That night I did not see him set out on his way. He got away from me without making a sound. When I succeeded in catching up with him, he was walking along with a quick and resolute step. He said to me merely, Ah, you were there. And he took me by the hand, but he was still worrying. It was wrong of you to come. You will suffer. I shall look as if I were dead, and that will not be true. I said nothing. You understand, it's it's too far, I cannot carry this body with me, it's too heavy. I said nothing. But it'll be like an old abandoned shell. There's nothing sad about old shells. I said nothing. He was a little discouraged, but he made one more effort. You know... It will be very nice. I, too, shall look at the stars. All the stars will be wells with rusty pulleys. All the stars will pour out fresh water for me to drink. I said nothing. That will be so amusing. You will have five hundred million little bells, and I shall have five hundred million springs of fresh water. And he, too, said nothing more, because he was crying. Here it is. Let me go on by myself. He sat down because he was afraid and said again, You know, my flower, I'm responsible for her and she's so weak. She's so naive. She has four thorns, of no use at all to protect herself against all the world. I too sat down because I was not able to stand up any longer. There now, that's all. He still hesitated a little. Then he got up. He took one step. I could not move. There was nothing but a flash of yellow close to his ankle. He remained motionless for an instant. He did not cry out. He fell as gently as a tree falls. There was not even any sound because of the sand. 
Chapter 27 And now six years have gone by. I have never yet told this story. The companions who met me on my return were content to see me alive. I was sad, but I told them I'm tired. Now my sorrow is comforted a little, that is to say not entirely, but I know that he did go back to his planet, because I did not find his body at daybreak. It was not such a heavy body, and at night I love to listen to the stars. It is like 500 million little bells. But there is one extraordinary thing. When I drew the muzzle for the little prince, I forgot to add the leather strap to it. He will never have been able to fasten it on his sheep, so now I keep wondering what's happening on his planet. Perhaps the sheep has eaten the flower. At one time I say to myself, surely not, the prince shuts his flower under her glass globe every night, and he watches over his sheep very carefully. Then I'm happy, and there is sweetness in the laughter of the stars. But at another time I say to myself, at some moment or other one is absent-minded, that's enough. On some one evening he forgot the glass globe, the sheep got out without making any noise in the night, and the little bells are changed to tears. Here then is a great mystery for you who also love the little prince, and for me nothing in the universe can be the same. If somewhere, we do not know where, a sheep that we never saw has, yes or no, eaten a rose. Look up at the sky and ask yourselves, is it yes or no? Has the sheep eaten the flower? You will see how everything changes. And no grown-up will ever understand that this is a matter of so much importance. This is to me the loveliest and saddest landscape in the world. It is the same as that on the preceding page, but I have drawn it again to impress it on your memory. It is here that the little prince appeared on the earth, and disappeared. Look at it carefully, so you'll be sure to recognize it, in case you travel someday to the African desert. If you should come upon this spot, please do not hurry on. Wait for a time exactly under the star. Then... If a little man appears who laughs, who has golden hair, who refuses to answer questions, you will know who he is. If this should happen, please comfort me. Send me word that he has come back. The End <laughs>